Now, so week four of Missions Month, and maybe just recap the story, where have we got to? You remember we started with creation, Genesis 1 and 2, we talked about how God has made everything very good, and part of our responsibility and mission is to care for the earth. We looked at then the calling of Abraham, Abraham, and how God called him to go and be a blessing and all those different ways in which we as Christians can go and be a blessing to others. And I've heard a few stories of people who have taken that seriously and gone and been a blessing to other people in the church, outside the church, in different ways, which is great. And on it goes and on it goes, and hopefully that blessing just keeps extending out. Last week, we then looked at God's heart for the nations and how through the Old Testament, God reveals himself to be a God who's concerned with all nations all people groups, all tribes and tongues, and he has this desire that all people everywhere are going to come to know him eventually, that his name would be glorified among all the peoples, not just the people of Israel. And this goes on through the Old Testament, but at the close of the Old Testament, you kind of have this question lingering as to how that's actually going to happen. God has said through the prophets and through the psalmists that all nations are going to come to know Yahweh. All nations are going to worship him. And yet that's only hinted at in the Old Testament. It's never realized. It's never fulfilled. Israel itself as a nation never receives any kind of commissioning to go and make disciples of other nations. You sometimes have people like Jonah who goes and preaches to another nation, but only really to preach God's judgment. And they don't have this commissioning to go and bring others in. And so at the close of the Old Testament, at the close of Malachi, you can kind of be forgiven for thinking, how's God going to do this? How's he going to fulfill this promise to to take his message and his word out beyond Israel to all the nations of the earth. And this was the question that was in people's minds at at the opening of the first century, at the beginning of the New Testament era. People, Jewish people in particular, were speculating, how's God going to reach the nations? How's this going to happen? And in that void of speculation, you have different theories that come out. And the most dominant of the theories was that God was going to raise up this king from within Israel, like David, like Solomon, a great king, a great military leader who was going to come up through the ranks in Israel, and he was going to lead Israel in a great rebellion over the nation that was oppressing her at the moment, which was Rome. Israel would throw off the the bondage that it was under, and it would again be this great world superpower. It would take dominance over all the other nations and set itself up as, uh, as the nation, the great city on a hill, and then indirectly the other nations would sort of be blessed because Israel would be a benevolent uh, nation, ruler, and these other nations would eventually come to know God because Israel was going to be such a righteous nation. And it would be led by this great anointed king within Israel. And this is where you get the idea of a Messiah. That's what a Messiah was going to be. A great king, a royal king, a military king like Joshua, David, Solomon, someone that was going to free the people from bondage. So this is the kind of expectation that's swirling around on the streets of Palestine in the first century. Who's it going to be? And there had been a few that had come and gone, who had set themselves up as this great ruler, this great king, the great Messiah, and then they'd met their own end, and it had turned out that everyone's dreams had been shattered. So people were asking, who is this great Messiah going to be, who's going to lead us in a wonderful victory, and finally all the nations are going to come in. And then one day in Palestine, up in the north of Palestine, a little village called Nazareth, this Jewish blue-collar worker, stands up in a synagogue one Saturday and he pulls out the Isaiah scroll and he reads a quote from Isaiah. As people did, it wasn't anything particularly surprising. He just read this passage. It's recorded in Luke 4. He says, 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is all just quoting Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. And that in itself wasn't particularly controversial. A lot of people stood up and read different scriptures, just like I'm reading a scripture now. But what he said next really racked people up. He put the scroll away and turned to the people and said, Today, that scripture has just been fulfilled in your hearing. That's like me reading out a passage about Jesus or Jesus coming again and then saying, Now, by the way, that's been fulfilled today. I'm the man. <laughs> now, that's, that's what makes the difference for people. One thing to read out a Bible verse, another thing to say the Bible verse is about you. And, and the crowd knew exactly what he was claiming because what you see as the story goes on is they take him outside, take him to the nearest cliff and try to push him off. They try to kill him. That's how seriously they take it. They know exactly what he's saying. He, Jesus, this blue-collar Jewish worker, tradesman from Nazareth, is claiming to be this anointed Messiah King, the great Savior and Deliverer of Israel. And it was just so ludicrous. It's really hard for us to grasp how utterly audacious this claim was of Jesus, that he was the one that he was this great military general that was going to come and set free an entire nation. It was incredibly gutsy to even make that claim. The people knew it, and Jesus knew it. That's why you get such a hostile reaction. And as the story goes on, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize that these authors, these gospel writers, seriously think that this guy, this Jew, is going to be the one through whom God reaches the nations. This is the man through whom God's now making himself known. Not just the nation of Israel as a whole, but this Israelite, this one, this man, this Jesus. He is now God's means of reaching the nations. He is now the one through whom Yahweh is revealing who he is, through whom God is revealing his character, through whom God's revealing his will and his plan and his purpose. And this is even going to be the means through which God's purpose goes out to all the nations, but it's not going to happen through some kind of military conquest. It's not going to happen through some great rebellion. It's happening through serving. It's happening, you remember the Mark stories that we've looked at this year, it's happening through compassion. It's happening through love. The kingdom is coming, but it's not coming in the way anyone thought it was going to come. Nobody expected the story to go this direction. Nobody expected this to be the next chapter. We thought it was going to be David all over again. But look at this. It's a suffering Messiah. And the whole story rolls forward. And of course, it reaches its great climax on the cross and in the empty tomb. And really, as you step back from this whole series, the whole telling of the biblical story, any telling of the biblical story has to reach its apex on the cross and in the resurrection. If, if the story doesn't rise to its complete climax at that point, then I think we've mistold the whole story. However you look at it, that is the pinnacle of everything that God's mission has accomplished and everything that it's going to accomplish. It all rises to this point where the dying and rising of Christ takes place. And the great question for the series on mission is what really happened on the cross? Behind all the pain and the suffering, that Jesus went through behind what you see in the, the movie, The Passion. What actually took place? What did God bring about? What did God achieve? And the answer that you give to that question really depends on how you define sin. Because your definition of sin 
will always determine your definition of the cross. Your theology of sin will always determine your theology of the cross because the cross is the, is the solution to sin as the problem. So if you think that sin is just human misunderstanding about God, if it's just lack of awareness maybe, and we just don't know how much God loves us and our eyes are closed and we're ignorant, then the cross becomes this great moral influence of God drawing us to himself. The cross becomes an act whereby God woos us to himself by demonstrating how great his love really is and how extravagant his love is in the hope that that will convince us to finally run towards him and not away from him. If you define sin as just social uh, oppression, uh, violence and uh, lack of harmony among people and social injustice and inequality, if you see sin that way, as many do, then the cross becomes only social liberation because it's addressing that problem. The cross is the size of whatever sin is. And so the cross becomes social liberation. It becomes freedom and peace and harmony and God going to the heart of violence in order that he might condemn violence. And if you define sin as only personal, individual, moral law-breaking, then the cross is only personal forgiveness from your own personal sin. So it always fits, you see. Your theology of the cross will always match your theology of sin. And what I've been arguing for through this series is for a holistic picture of both sin and salvation. That sin is something that has a cosmic dimension to it. And when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, everything was affected. Everything in all of creation. Yes, the human soul and heart was corrupted and we're out of relationship with God. So was the family. So was society. So was all of creation, the entire earth, thrown out of kilter, thrown out of whack. And if that's the size of the problem of sin, then you come to the New Testament and the size of what God did on the cross has to be equally as cosmic and as universal in scope. Otherwise, the cross hasn't dealt with the problem of sin. Everything that sin is, as, as far and as wide, and everything that it's, that it's affected and contaminated and marred and tainted has to be addressed by the cross. So I would argue that on the cross, yes, God did restore, make possible reconciliation between you as an individual and God. That's at the heart of it. But it didn't stop there. The cross, I think, reaches out across the whole cosmos. Its implications reach out across the family, across society, across every possible human relationship, across even the earth, the land, all of creation. The cross touches every single thing and goes to every dark corner that sin has found and destroyed and, and eradicates the problem of sin. It triumphs over evil in every single form, in every single place. It makes possible the solving of every social and moral dilemma and problem. It lifts up the needy and the broken and restores dignity and love it even makes possible the restoration of all creation, which will be culminated when Christ returns. The cross is completely holistic. I think one of the, the most critical things we can do in a series on mission is regain a bigger picture of the cross. Regain a bigger picture of what it was that God actually did on Calvary. That he did more than just redeem the souls of individual men and women. But he made possible and even begun when Jesus raised from the dead the restoration of all things. Men and women, society, 
creation. And when Christ rose from the dead on that third day, that new creation begun. That kingdom is not a future promise. It's not just something that waits for one day when Christ is going to return. It began that Sunday when Jesus walked away from the empty tomb. It actually took effect that day. Just like now, we're all moaning and groaning because of winter and we're desperately looking for that first sign of spring. You know, that first blossom, that first sign that maybe winter is over. Metaphorically speaking, that was Easter Sunday. In the scheme of God's plan for history, Easter Sunday was that first sign of spring, that first sign that winter's over. You remember the metaphor that C.S. Lewis works with in the Narnia Chronicle, perpetual winter, and then suddenly, first sign of spring. Winter is finally coming to an end. Spring begun. That's what happened on Easter Sunday. And ever since, spring has been bursting forth and forth and forth as the kingdom expands until one day, finally, this glorious summer is going to be here. That's kind of how it is in the season of God's mission on earth. And so you get through the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then his ascension into heaven. And you get to the close of the Gospels. And in a way, one, one question is answered, which is how is God going to reach the nations? And the answer, of course, is through this man, through Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. This is his means now of going to all peoples. But another question is then raised. When's it going to happen? If Jesus has come, if he's the Messiah, if he's, if he's died and risen again, when? And the disciples are sitting around <clears throat> one day in someone's lounge upstairs. And this is Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God comes down and fills the believers and empowers them and equips them to now take this good news about Jesus to all the nations. That's how it's going to happen. And if you've read Acts chapter 2, and uh, George Whelan spoke on that earlier in the year, it's a chapter in the Bible that's designed to be read next to the story of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11. We touched on that last week. In the story of the Tower of Babel, all the nations come together. They all scheme among themselves. We're going to build this great tower for our own glory to prove how great we are. They go about building this structure. God comes down. He judges the nations, scatters the tower, and he scatters the peoples as well, and he gives them different languages to speak to confuse them as a sign of judgment. And then you go all the way over to Acts 2. And you find that Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, is exactly the reverse of the Tower of Babel. Everything that Babel stood for is suddenly undone and reversed at Pentecost. Once again, the nations are gathered, this time in Jerusalem, not in Babel. They've all come together from, from all corners of the known world for this festival of Pentecost. Jews that speak many different languages. And once again, the Spirit of God comes down. And once again... He, he gives the nations different languages to speak, gives the people that are present different languages, the gift of tongues. But this time it's not an act of judgment, it's an act of grace. This time it's an act of healing for the nations. It's an act that enables people to understand one another and understand the message that's been spoken. And now the nations aren't being scattered anymore, they're being gathered in. The nations are finally coming into the kingdom. And that promised day when God's word would go forth and the nations would come in is happening now in Acts chapter 2. And all the nations are now suddenly fair game. They're all the mission field of God. And you can almost hear the penny dropping in the minds of the disciples who think, well, the Messiah has come. The Spirit of God has come. The nations are now being gathered in. Let's go. And what happens from there is just this proliferation of missions activity 
right through the book of Acts, right through the rest of the New Testament. As the church has formed this new community to bear God's name among the nations, people are equipped and sent out, and you find Paul emerges as one of the early great missionaries taking the gospel to many different nations. And out it goes. It ripples out from Jerusalem and then the surrounding regions and Judea and Samaria and so on, then out into Antioch and the foreign countries right through to Rome. It just goes on and on and on. And people go and are sent forth and God's word goes out. And this church is really a missionary movement delivering the gospel to people that need to know Jesus and need to hear it. And you see the way in which as the gospel goes out to these different environments beyond Israel, beyond Judaism, that it's contextualized differently. It's adapted to different cultures without losing its essence, without losing its, its heart. And Paul was a master of this. If you've read much of Paul's uh, letters in the New Testament, he, he just has a brilliant way of contextualizing the gospel message depending on the group that he's talking to. If it's Jews, he'll use Jewish language. If it's Greeks, he'll use Greek language. If it's people in Corinth or <clears throat> Athens or wherever, he'll use imagery. He'll quote their poets. He'll quote their philosophers back at them. And he'll turn it around to show them that regardless of what background people have had, they all need to be moved toward Jesus. I'll show you just one place where he does this. One verse from 2 Corinthians 4. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. And uh, before I read this verse, just a background piece of information. These three groups that Paul's working with, you have the Jewish people, and for them, one of the great metaphors, the great images they loved was that of light. God is light, in whom there's no darkness. Jewish people used that image all the time and saw God as this great, great, glorious ray of light. And then Paul worked with also Greek people for whom the great ideal was knowledge. The goddess Sophia of wisdom. The Greeks were enamored with knowledge. So you have all the Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and these others. The Greeks love knowledge. And he also then moved across boundaries and worked with Romans. And for Romans, it was glory. The glory of Rome. All roads lead to Rome. The great glory of the Roman Empire. And Paul here, writing across all of these boundaries and attempting to show how the gospel is for every person, no matter what tradition and what background they're from. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You see what Paul's saying? He's wrapping them all together. Light, knowledge, glory, they're all here. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from, God has revealed his son to us and given us an ability to take this gospel to all nations. This is for everyone. It's light, it's knowledge, and it's glory. And Paul did this time and time again. He'd use images, he'd use metaphors that made sense in this particular culture. And it's a challenge for us today. As we think about people we know, as we think about cultures that we may be working amongst, to make the gospel relevant, to give the gospel legs in a particular environment without compromising its essence, but finding language, finding images, finding starting points and cultural bridges and links that may give us an inroad to be able to speak meaningfully to a particular person, into a particular cultural group. And so you see, as you read particularly the book of Acts, that this church was just a missionary movement. It was energized by the Spirit and just consumed with this passion to take this incredible news that God has won an amazing victory in Jesus. Take it to anyone who would possibly listen. 
and take it further and further and further. And the story just kept rolling through church history of the gospel keeping on moving out. And you might think, as you get your head around that idea of the church being a missionary movement, that it, it kind of compromised other areas of the church's life. You know, how do they do pastoral care? How do they do worship? How do they do prayer if they were so focused on this outreach, on this mission? But in fact, what you see is the opposite. What you see is that as these believers get themselves so fired up about taking this good news to anyone and everyone, it kind of fuels the other areas of the church's life. You see the way that this preoccupation with mission actually fuels their prayer life because there's no greater incentive to pray than when you have on your mind the, the names and the faces of people you know who don't yet know Christ. There's nothing that drives you to your knees more than those interactions with people you know who are just so close to choosing for themselves to come into the kingdom. People you know who, who your heart just breaks for, you know, family members, friends, colleagues, neighbors who just don't know Jesus. And as we get a burden for those people, as the early church did, these are things that drive us to our knees in prayer. And like Paul, we, we, we weep for those people. Our heart breaks for the things that break the heart of God. <clears throat> and mission fuels the life of prayer in the church as we pray fervently for more to come in, for, for the harvest to be greater, and for more workers to go out into the harvest field. You see, as the church focuses on mission, it fuels the community life of the church. You know, often there's this idea in the church that we need to get everything sorted out in-house, everything running perfectly, and then perhaps we'll reach others. And there's some wisdom in that because you don't want to bring people into a dysfunctional community. But what seems to be the pattern in Acts is that as the church reached out, it pulled those in the church together. It actually created solidarity because there's nothing that'll pull you together with another person like that, feeling that you're united in a common cause, that you're fellow soldiers on the battlefield, you're fighting a common enemy, you're brothers and sisters in arms. You know, in that sense. And this is not an excuse, by the way, for militant Christianity. I'm not using the battle metaphor to try and stir that up at all. When Paul talks about his comrades in the New Testament as my fellow soldier, he's talking about that spiritual warfare, which is actually conducted in love and compassion. But it means that we're fighting a real enemy, Satan, who tries to hold people's lives in bondage. But as we go out boldly in Jesus' name and seek to initiate those conversations and have influence where we can have influence. It really does pull you together in the church, much more than just an odd social event will. It gives you that sense that we are fighting for something together, that we're united on the same team and we're united in a common cause. And it fuels that caregiving within the church. It's like taking care of the wounded on the battlefield. We're not going to leave anyone behind. We're caring for each other because we're united in this common mission. And mission even fuels the worship life of the church. It actually gives incentive to worship. One of the greatest and richest worship times that I've ever had, a corporate worship time, was at a conference that was run by the organization Timo and Francis are part of, uh, a worship experience at a conference, and it was right before we went out and undertook this evangelistic project. And because that was so hot on our minds of what we were about to do, how we were about to reach out, Man, we worship like we'd never worshipped before. And it was so rich, and it was so deep, and it was so powerful. And you get that sense that that's part of what worship is. It's, it's allowing the Spirit of God to re-energize us and mobilize us for what lies out those doors, for the life that lies beyond here, 
for the world that you're going to encounter tomorrow morning. That's what these times are about. This is like huddling in the bunker, huddling in the trenches, and having this pep rally before we head back out into the great battle. And if, if, if it only becomes just about a, a social group and about uh, the already convinced and serving one another's needs and, and we lose our entire focus on the lost, then I think that's when, over time, the church becomes insular. That's when, over time, we just become withered and we die because mission and outreach and external focus is like the fuel that fuels other things in the church. And we need to be careful as a church that we always maintain that external focus because unbelievers don't have much of a voice in the church. When decisions are made, when ministries are started, when things are, are strategized, you don't generally have the non-Christian around the table saying, well, here's what needs to be thought of from my perspective. So we need to be the ones that champion the cause of the lost. We need to be the ones that are thinking of how what we do affects our brothers and sisters who are yet to hear and yet to respond to the good news. And this challenge of missions is ultimately something that filters down to the individual level for every one of us. It's not enough just to say, well, why doesn't the church do this or that? It's not enough just to say, I'll leave it to the missionaries. Timo and Francis are out there. They can handle it for me. I'll back them. I'll throw them a dollar and let them do the work. Ultimately, it's something that each one of us have to take seriously as a calling, as a responsibility to be ambassadors in the world. And I know that as soon as I mention the E word, you know, evangelism, the hands go up, the shutters come down, all the connotations are there, all the baggage is there, no one wants to hear about it. And I'd only say to you that evangelism, I think, doesn't have to be what we've made it. It doesn't have to be what, what you think it is. <clears throat> it can be something that's highly relational and highly energizing, just maximizing the relationships you have with people you know for Christ. It's not about moving people from A to Z. It's about moving them from A to B and then from B to C and maybe just one, one more letter that someone else has already moved them this far down and we just help one more click. It's about just developing friendships with people, finding common interests, just getting to know people in the first, entrance, in, uh, first instance without an agenda, without necessarily you know, the, the script in, in the back of your mind that you're going to roll out. Just get to know them, just love them and then learn their stories. <clears throat> Ask questions. The colleague, the neighbour, the person in your school, just draw them out. Let them talk. Find that deeper level of conversation where you hear what's on their heart, you hear what's going on in their life at a deeper level, and then gently and discerningly discern those next steps. What's the next step for that person? Bring those names and faces to your mind even now as I'm talking. What's the next step for that person? Is it inviting them along to a service? Maybe, maybe not. Is it feeding them a book or a CD on a topic you know they're interested in? Maybe. Is it just continuing to build that relationship for now? Being with them maybe because they're going through a crisis and they need you to move in so that you can be there and be a voice and hear them and love them and perhaps then have an opportunity to speak. Maybe it's sharing your story. Maybe that time has come when you can intentionally share what God's done in your life as a testimony to them. And maybe, maybe you know people right now who really are ripe for the picking and that moment is right to share God's story with them. And even issue that challenge of where they stand with the Lord and invite them to become part of God's story. And friends, a good first step in all of this is just start praying. Start praying for the names and the faces that are in your minds, even now, the people you know. Just bring them before the Lord. How often are we praying for these people? How often are we shedding a tear for these people that we know who don't yet know the grace that we've received 
who haven't yet had this encounter with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, who don't know what it is yet to taste the Spirit of God. Just pray for them and ask God to increase your passion and give opportunities. I think a lot of evangelism is being sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit during the course of every day. It's just awareness. It's actually saying, God, just keep me alert, keep me open, and you might just start finding you notice opportunities that you never saw before. A moment comes and you can step forward rather than shrinking back. An opportunity comes to speak up for Christ. An opportunity comes to share a little bit of your story, to testify something, to, to say what you did at the weekend and you talk about Sunday rather than Saturday. You know, maybe those opportunities are there already, but that takes that tuning in to the work of the Spirit. And as each one of us start doing this, as each one of us become that salt and that light in our own workplaces, not out of guilt, not out of obligation, not out of condemnation, but because we have received this incredible grace and it compels us to share it with others. Then we become, as a church, a mission-minded community. We become that missionary movement and we keep moving forward the story of God's mission on earth, helping others into a relationship with the Jesus whom we know.